Our reading this morning is a poem by Jean M. Olson called Materializing. In what form did this spirit appear to you today? The blossom of a flower, the tug of a child's hand, the silent twinkling stars, an old woman smiling at the bus stop, a lover's gentle hug, a presence so close to your soul you could almost touch it, words of truth formed unbidden in your mind. The holy disguised in so many ways, may your senses open wide in recognition. We are living beneath the Great Big Dipper. We are washed by the very same rain. We are swimming in the stream together, some in power and some in pain. We can worship this ground we walk on, cherishing the beings that we live beside. Loving spirits will live forever. We're all swimming to the other side. Loving spirits will live forever. We're all swimming to the other side. Swimming, 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 swimming. A few days ago, I received a call from a parent a call like so many I had received before, and in fact, a call not unlike one I had made myself to a UU church 14 years ago. This parent was interested in our religious education programs. She told me that her family had not been part of a spiritual community, but that her neighbor had told her about us, and she had to see if all the good stuff she'd heard was true. She has some questions, though. And before she brings her family to a Sunday service or has her children visit a religious education class here, she's going to need some answers. What exactly do you teach the kids? (laughs) Who teaches them, she asks. Why are you called a church? Is Unitarian Universalism a religion? The caller was trying hard to be polite. And I could tell it was hard for her to trust me. She had been intrigued enough to pick up the phone, but she had the usual fears a lot of people have about religious institutions. So she wanted answers to her questions, but she wasn't going to tell me her fears outright because she didn't want me to just parrot back the answers she wanted to hear. She'd already looked at her website, and she wanted real answers from a real person. As we talked, I got the feeling that some of the words and phrases I was using were getting in the way of our connection and making our communication harder. Worship, children's chapel, spiritual practice. The very term religious education sounded jargony to me, even as I said it. But I kept at it, trying to convey accurately what we do here. And to her credit, she kept at it too, trying to listen even though she was clearly uncomfortable. I admired her courage. 
And though I didn't have easy questions, easy answers for her hard questions, I liked that she asked them. She demanded that I think deeply and respond authentically. I think many of us are like this mom, whether we have children of our own or not. We want to know that our children are welcomed, that our church affirms the light in all children's hearts, indeed the light of any person of any age that comes here. Because even as adults, we want others to be gentle with the tender parts of our spirits that still feel young and vulnerable. We're attracted, most of us, to the idea of sharing our deep truths with one another, but many of us are afraid of being taken in and betrayed somehow. We don't want to believe that we're really welcome here, only to find out later that that welcome has some strings attached. That may have happened to us when we were younger and naive, and we don't want it to happen again. As children, we may have been told that we ask too many questions or that our questions are disrespectful. We may have been told that we cannot trust our own sense of right or wrong, and we may have been told that whom or what we love is not okay, that we're not good enough, that we don't belong, that we're only lovable when we do what we're told and believe what we're told. Such messages can wound the spirit, and none of us wants to risk such wounding. Spiritual wounds, like real wounds, will fester if left untended. They might erupt in violence against others or ourselves. They can lead us to run and hide in drinking or drugs. They can leave us feeling withdrawn, depressed, scarred. And we don't want our children and youth to be damaged like that. We want to protect the light in each of their hearts. We want them to come into adulthood whole and sure of themselves and feeling loved. As a result, many of us have strong opinions about children and religion, how they should be taught about religion, welcomed into it, or even protected from it. What we teach our children in our churches feels very important, and we don't always agree on what it should be. The religious education of the next generation is a big responsibility, and we do not want to mess it up. Adults often tell me about their hopes for our children and youth ministries. A common theme I hear is this. We should be very careful not to tell kids what they're supposed to believe. Isn't this the church where they can believe whatever they want? The general idea seems to be that we should encourage children and youth to ask questions, but that we should make sure that we don't reveal too much about how we ourselves would answer those questions, lest we make them feel judged or wrong for having different ideas. And on the face of it, I agree with this concern. I agree that we should ask our children to ask questions and to find their own answers. But if we want to do right by our children and youth, Encouraging them to ask and answer life's hardest questions on their own is not enough. Before I became a mother, I had lots of ideas about the kind of parent I wanted to be. I wanted to love my children unconditionally, of course. I wanted to support them in finding their own path. I wanted to raise them to be compassionate, to encourage them to stand up for justice, 
and I especially wanted them to know that they could talk to me about anything. So when I was pregnant with my second child and my older son, Cole, who was almost three years old then, started asking me about the baby I was carrying, I wanted to give him accurate information in words he could understand. How does the baby breathe in there, he asked me. And so I told him that the baby was getting oxygen through the umbilical cord from my body. Is the baby wearing pajamas? <laughs> Cole wanted to know. <laughs> no, the baby's not wearing clothes yet, I told him. He found this bit of news fascinating, a little disturbing. How is the baby going to get out? he asked next. I told him about childbirth in a rather general way, giving him what seemed like enough information to satisfy a three-year-old. But he looked at me patiently and said, I know that, but I mean exactly, exactly how does the baby get out? <laughs> All the parenting books tell you to just answer the questions your children ask and no more, and not to offer more information than they can handle. In my experience, children ask all the questions, every single detail. If Unitarian Universalists are the folks that ask questions, I think all three-year-olds are UUs, right? And when you give a three-year-old answers, they just have more questions. So in some senses, yes, this is the church where we can all believe whatever we want. We believe different things. We regularly remind ourselves that we don't have to think alike to love alike. Here we try to keep our minds and our hearts open wide. With an open mind, I might learn something new from someone I talk to in the social hall after service or from another member of my small group. With an open mind, I can learn something from my child, from a friend, from a stranger, maybe even from an enemy. And then any encounter might offer me new information or a new avenue into understanding the holy. And so it is important, essential really, that I keep my mind open, like the open door of a guest house. But that's just half the work, really. We must keep the door of our own minds open, yes, but we must also be the guest who walks through doors that others open to us. That's how we build a vibrant church. When someone invites us to enter, we show up. If we're to live into a faith tradition that calls us to keep learning and yearning our whole lives, and if our church is to provide fertile ground for spiritual growth, we must be willing to answer out loud the questions that are hardest to answer. We must make it our spiritual practice to share with one another what we each know now. This idea may run counter to how you think of supporting the development of faith in children or even adults. Many of us want to be careful not to exert undue influence or to pressure others into our way of seeing things, and that's good, right? We're acutely aware of how tender the soul can be and we don't want to trespass where we're not welcome. But think of this. We talk easily and openly about the importance of being a welcoming church. We want people to know that their beliefs are welcome here. We hope people with diverse beliefs will find a home here. 
If this is what we really want, we must practice sharing our own knowing, our own beliefs with one another. We can't just talk about things we know we agree about or things that are lacking in controversy. We're counting on each other to introduce us to some challenging ideas too. We're here to wake each other up, to feed one another's growth, to expand our own spirits. When we talk about being radically welcoming, are we saying our only job is to stand at the door and open, and open it for the stranger to welcome them in? Well, in my experience, it's relatively easy to be the one issuing the welcome. The person who welcomes is the host, right? And the host has the home field advantage. The guest, the guest is the one on unfamiliar ground. Being the guest is hard. Here's how I connect this to the spiritual practice of sharing the truths that form in my mind, as the poet puts it. When someone asks me about my beliefs, they're inviting me to be their guest. They're inviting me to tell them how I have come to be who I am and how I have come to know what I know. They're opening their door to me, inviting me to bring myself in to meet them. Sharing on that level is vulnerable. If done with an open heart and mind, it's spiritually intimate, really. Talking about my most closely held beliefs and values, it's the spiritual equivalent of answering a three-year-old boy's very specific questions about childbirth. It's not easy. But if we are to be of use to one another, we must be willing to share what we know now, even if we feel unsure of ourselves or worried about doing it wrong. When the child asks, how does the baby get out? It's not helpful to answer, how do you think he gets out? <laughs> the child has no answer. He has a question, and he's come to me for an answer. If I want to encourage the child to remain open and curious, if I want the child to ask more questions, the challenge is to answer to the best of my ability. Me being willing to answer tells the child that it's okay to ask. Of course, the really good theological questions don't have simple answers. Does my dog have a soul? Are people inherently good or evil or neutral? What does it mean that I sometimes feel my grandma's presence though she died years ago? As a group, we UUs have a wide variety of answers to such questions. Most of us wouldn't claim to have a lock on the answers. These are the kinds of questions we worry and wonder about all our lives. When we share what we know now, however meager, we aren't giving our final answers, so much as allowing the sacred knowing in our own hearts to be witnessed, moving it out into the world. Until quite recently, I lived in California. My partner, Allison, and I lived there in November 2008. Our boys were six and nine years old then. When the majority of Californians voted for our current president and Proposition 8. As the results rolled in that evening, it felt like we were losing ground and had the chance to move forward all at the same time. I lived in a state of emotional confusion that week and arrived at church on Sunday morning, wrung out, numb, hollow. 
That morning, our minister, Reverend Aaron McEmrus, stood on the chancel, this heterosexual white guy, with a piercing determination. Aaron declared that denying any loving couple the right to marry was an assault on the essential truth that all love is sacred. He said Prop 8 and its denial of the inherent worth and dignity of LGBT folks was plain and simple wrong. After lighting our chalice to open the service, Aaron lit another candle. He called it the candle of commitment. And he pledged that our church would light that candle every single Sunday until Prop 8 was overturned. And they did. They did that and so much more, just like many of you. They let their truth guide them. They gave public voice to their beliefs. They were vulnerable and open. They talked about why marriage equality mattered to them regardless of their own sexual orientation. And this morning, when that community gathers for worship, they will light and then ceremonially blow out that candle because Prop 8 has finally been struck down. Because of them and because of gentle, determined people of faith here in Minnesota, I know now that allies are uniquely able to offer witness to those of us that others seek to dehumanize. What I know now is that allies standing on the side of love can heal souls and change minds. They can change laws. They can overturn injustice. What I know now is that allies who keep that flame of hope alive are among the most deeply moral, fiercely compassionate, and spiritually grounded people that I know. What I know now, too, because they showed me how it's done, is that I also must strive to live with that level of integrity. I know now that the good news that came down from the Supreme Court this week is only half the story. And so my heart is divided between celebration and mourning. I know now that the way for me to respond to this week's news is to acknowledge both extremes, both the progress and the terrible setbacks in the decisions that were handed down. I know now that my faith compels me to join in the struggle to restore protections for voting so everyone's voice is heard and counted and to keep on working and witnessing till justice is achieved because of those who showed me how with their words and their actions. I know now in a way I never really knew before that injustice diminishes me whether I am its intended target or not. Embracing this truth moves me closer to spiritual wholeness. I'm sorry it took me as long as it did to really learn that, but this is what I know now. When our youth at First Universalist <clears throat> are in ninth or 10th grade, we invite them to participate in our coming of age program. In coming of age, we ask these teens a lot of questions and we show them how to engage in spiritual practices that help them locate their inner knowing. We have them meet and talk with adult mentors and their ministers, and at the end of the program, we ask each one to present a personal creed, 
a statement of belief in a coming-of-age worship service. We ask them to publicly claim their beliefs as their own. In the coming-of-age service this past spring, our youth were really courageous in telling their truths, some saying they place their trust in science, others in God, in friends, some saying they find comfort in Jesus or nature or family. They were all over the map, but they were also in it together, speaking out and listening to one another. Could I do that? Could you? It's a lot to ask of somebody who's 14 or 15 years old. But we recognize that coming of age, becoming a spiritual adult, requires this kind of coming out. We ask our youth to come out to their peers, their families, and their religious community as people with their own answers and aspirations. We expect that their ideas and beliefs will evolve throughout their lives, and so we hope they will keep on discovering, naming, and sharing what they know. We would be wise to periodically ask of ourselves what we ask of those coming-of-age kids. So I don't sing well, but I sing anyway. <laughs> when I'm willing to be vulnerable and take a risk, my untrained, imperfect voice can inspire the production of beautiful music from others, music that transcends the boundaries of what I'm capable of. My offering and your offering, however meager or unfinished, is enough to do that. Jean M. Olson, the poet from this morning's reading, asks if you too have had moments when words of truth formed unbidden in your mind. Those tender words of truth are what we know now. They are treasures. Here there's room enough for what you bring, whether your offering is a prayer, an observation, an idea, or a song. Your truth is your treasure. And when offered in the spirit of love, what you know now is always welcome here. Bring your whole self into this place of worship and wondering. What you know now is what we need now. Let it lead us to the next set of questions and let us all keep sharing what we know each step along the way. May it be so. Amen.